Welcome back to The Duck Stops Here, a podcast from the University of Oregon. I'm Michelle Joyce Fife, and if you're like me, you probably didn't think too much about the supply chain before the pandemic. But today's guest has spent his entire career navigating supply chain logistics in the food production industry. These big companies, they're like, okay, prove to me that you can get, you know, we're McDonald's, and so we're going to need millions of pounds of dried raisins. Prove to me that you can get millions of pounds of dried raisins and that you have a system where you can reliably pack these into the right size packages and meet mm-hmm. our output needs and surge with us if this product does, you know, if it does five times better than we think, you'll have enough capacity to make that happen. That was UO business grad John Pooley. He's the CEO of Stir Foods and a board member for four other private equity companies in the food production space. He's here to talk to us about how global trends are impacting food prices and what it takes to become a supplier for companies like Starbucks and McDonald's. He'll also share what it's like being the first person in his family to go to college and how he met his wife at UO. Before I delve into your really interesting background in food manufacturing and your expertise in supply chain management, I wanted to see if we could just get a quick snapshot of what you're doing right now, which boards you're on, and uh, you just became a CEO. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I am. I just took a job a month ago. I'm the CEO of Stir Foods, which is a custom sauce manufacturer headquartered in Orange County, California. Um, we have five plants, so five manufacturing sites, and we serve customers in a whole variety of different spaces. For example, we make soups for El Polo Loco. We'll sell a frozen soup to them, a concentrate, and then they will heat that up in the store and sell, sell that to consumers. So a different, couple different segments of our business, but it's been fun. I've been doing it for about a month. And in addition to that, uh, my I've been on a couple boards, so I'm on uh, three other boards. I'm on the board of Stir. I'm on the board of a company called Tropical Foods, which is the largest Mexican novelty ice cream company in the U.S. And then I'm also on the board of a company called American Nuts, which is a nut processor. Uh, It does a lot of importing of nuts and seeds from overseas. And then finally, I'm on the board of a company called McClancy Seasonings, which is a spice company. primarily designed around the food service channel, a lot of poultry applications, and they're in North Carolina. That's, uh, those are the boards and that's my current job. You studied business at the University of Oregon, and then you went on to get your PhD in supply chain management from Penn State. And I have to say, I have never thought about supply chain issues as much as I have in the last year. It seems like the supply chain is in the news all the time. It's something that everybody is talking about. And I'm wondering if your education and experience in this area prepared you for the unprecedented global pandemic and the supply chain issues that resulted. It, um, you know, it was really interesting. I, um, I kind of backed into supply chain because uh, my vision was to be an airline pilot. My dad was an airline pilot. And, um, I uh, unfortunately had an accident when I was a young kid and I messed up one of my eyes. So I couldn't pass the flight physical. 
to become an airline pilot. And so I got involved in distribution kind of as like a, well, kind of related to a little bit of transportation and flying. And, um, and then ended up working on that area of my, most of my career until I moved into kind of more general management roles. Um, and so my schooling was really helpful. I had, a, I, you know, when, when I first got involved, it was pretty niche and it was kind of the, it was kind of an unusual area of expertise. And like you say, it's become more and more prevalent as the world's gotten more complicated and more interdependent, uh, the academic training I got was super helpful for me and my career. You know, a lot of things happened in the have happened in the world since I went through that training. So it was kind of a mixture of both my academic training and my experiential training that mm-hmm. uh, helped me learn how to deal with stuff. But the COVID pandemic world is everything's even more complicated now. So there's there's always new learning to be had. And last time we spoke, you were telling me about, I think you were talking about soybean oil and how the war in Ukraine and uh, renewable energy sources were contributing to the increase in food prices. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, so the current company I, I'm working at, Stir Foods, we use a lot of soybean oil, like millions of pounds of soybean oil. It's, it's the single biggest input and different versions of uh oil, canola oil, extra virgin olive oil, and regular soybean oil. Um, soybean oil in particular has uh, been affected by, um, you know, things going on in the world like the war, war in Ukraine, which has created this whole uncertainty about the whole ag system. Ukraine's obviously a big breadbasket of the world. But then in parallel with that, this run-up in gas prices have uh, created a whole new supply system um, in terms of renewable uh, diesel and renewable gases. And a lot of soybean oil has been redirected into those, especially with the run-up in prices, uh, redirected to those uh, new ventures. And so what that's done is really created a, you know, a huge new demand for a product where supply hasn't flexed as much as demand. And as you might expect, prices are directly double what they were a year and a half ago. Um, and for soybean oil. And the same is true for canola oil and kind of runs in parallel and all these other alternative oils. Um, so it's a, it's one of those things you don't think about, like, like you said, which is, you know, why, why is my food price going up? Well, it has to do with Ukraine. Okay. I kind of get that because, you know, there's uncertainty about that crop and how do we get to it? But then also has to do with this run up and change and uh, push for alternative uh, fuels. I, I want to step back for a second here and talk a little bit about when you first started your business, because you um, you took out a loan to start your first business and you grew it to be over 600 employees and then you sold it. You ended up just as a you know self-started business being um, a big supplier to Starbucks and McDonald's. And I just wanted to ask about what that process looked like and how you got there. Well, it started with me going to the school at U of O, getting a degree, and then working in the food business um, for 20, I graduated when I was 21, and I started my business when I was 45. So there was 24 years of work. (laughs) We're working, working for, you know, for the most part, big companies, mostly public companies, uh, one large private company. 
where I worked in food manufacturing and I, uh, that was my career and I kind of rose through the ranks and started off in supply chain and then became general manager, president of a business and uh, did that the last little bit. But after I'd worked for 20 plus years, I was, you know, and I got a chance to run a business for other people. I was like, this is a, there's an opportunity out there for me to start a business. And I was, uh, I was frustrated in the job I was in. I started to look for another job and it worked out in my life that my older daughter had just graduated from high school and my younger daughter was just going to high school. So my wife said, Hey, you can get another job, but we're not moving. Um, and, um, and in the process of looking for a job, I was having a hard time finding another job that I found, uh, appealing, but I did came, I came across this opportunity to be a supplier to uh, a large food company, large produce company. And I talked to the people that were running it and I'm like, if I put together a business, would you let me be one of your suppliers? Um, and they were frustrated with their current supplier and they said, yeah. So I sat down with a local community bank, very small bank, eight branches and the, but they had an SBA program. This is 2007, 2008. So the economy is going through kind of a, a metamorphosis then. It was taking a big downturn, but they were willing to uh, help me get an SBA loan. And we, I don't know if most of your listeners might not be familiar with that process, but in an SBA loan, you know, the government guarantees a certain percentage of the loan, usually 80 or 90%. And then the owner will guarantee the rest. So what I had to do was I basically had to put all my life savings in my house and you know, basically sign those over to the bank and say, okay, if this, you know, I'm in, you're going to loan me some money that's partially underwritten by the government, but also partially underwritten by my savings in my house. And um, um, they did, they're willing to do that. And then I was able to, high stakes. yeah, there was, there were, there was high stakes. My <laughs> wife said, oh, you're crazy. Why are we doing this? Just suck it up. <laughs> You only got a few more years to work. But um, anyway, I was uh, the first year we broke even. And then every year after that, we, you know, we were able to make money. But when you're growing that fast, the idea of making money is kind of illusory because you don't, there's no money to take home because you have to really right. plow it back to the business. So we grew 50% every year for eight years. And so it was uh, eventually we outgrew, we had a plant in California and we outgrew that plant. Our customers were bugging us to put a second plant in the East Coast. I had to go out and I had exceeded by then the amount of money you can get from an SBA loan. Um, so at the time, I think it was capped at $4 million. And so that was the, and so um, I had to go out and get some private investors. And that was my first exposure to these private equity groups. Um, because even though the business was doing really well, banks are nervous about loaning money to people who are new. And so, mm -hmm. What year was this? This would have been, that second plant was probably 2013. Okay, so it was fairly shortly after the big collapse and everything. It was, it was five years. And so, okay. um, you know, I had this great track record for five years, but they're like, oh, five years isn't long enough. And, you know, hey, you're, uh, we're, we're too nervous to loan you money, even though you've got this good story. So anyway, I found some private investors. They, they weren't nervous. And so I partnered with them, built the second plant, kept growing it. And then uh, three and a half, four years after that, ended up selling the business. Um, and that was my 
my plan all along. I, just, I enjoyed the business, but I, but I had a plan to, that that was, you know, I was going to take it to where I thought I could get it and then, and then move on. So that's what I did. And so you were selling salads to McDonald's. So, it, so we did, our, we did a couple of different types of customers. McDonald's and Starbucks were, you said the word, we were a big supplier. They were big and we were a supplier. So <laughs> <laughs> you got those two words, right? Uh, we were, we, uh, we kind of specialized. I had supplied uh, McDonald's uh, in my previous life. We were, in fact, mostly sauces. I ran a business where we supplied sauces to McDonald's. So I knew kind of how McDonald's worked. And they have a, their own unique supply system. And uh, I was able to get my small company approved as a supplier, which was an accomplishment. Took a took a while. And we supplied them with their products for their oatmeal toppings. So... <laughs> It was a, you know, basically dried fruits and some nuts that would go on top of uh, oatmeal. You'd go there and they'd give you, here's your oatmeal and here's a bag of fruit and here's a bag of nuts. And we supplied those small bags of fruits and nuts. And then I was able to leverage that into getting that same business at Starbucks. Um, and who I hadn't done work with before, but they were, the McDonald's card was able to give us some credibility. Mm-hmm. But our big, so those were, those are names that all your listeners would be familiar with. But our big customers were the salad produce companies, um, and we helped them develop kits, and we assembled kits for them. I mean, literally, there's a kale salad that was at Costco, and at one time, we were shipping 20 truckloads a week of just the kit um, to a produce company, and they were then putting those kits in with the produce and, and selling them through Costco. So our product would have been inside another company's uh, bag that you would have gone to Costco and bought. So it's kind of one of those upstream businesses that's not that visible to, uh, you know, the end consumer, but it was, it was a great run for, for us. You know, it's funny. I think of some industries, uh, some industries, it's a no brainer, like, Oh, it's all about relationships, like the entertainment world. Um, but it sounds like a lot of what you're saying is that, you know, these relationships that you had built were absolutely critical, like the years of laying the groundwork and being a trusted supplier and everything. Um, was it also about individual relationships with people within the organizations or how did that work? So it's probably both. Um, and it's also, you know, a company like that, I know I had worked for companies like that for a long time. So I kind of knew how decision-making worked and it's pretty objective, you know, you get into smaller companies and it can be kind of more personal, which is kind of like, hey, trust me and I'll take care of you. But mm-hmm. these big, big companies, they're like, okay, prove to me that you can get, you know, we're McDonald's. And so we're going to need millions of pounds of dried raisins. Um, mm-hmm. And prove to me that you can get millions of pounds of dried raisins and that you have a system where you can reliably pack these into, into the right size packages and meet mm-hmm. our output needs and surge with us if this product does, you know, if it does five times better than we think, you'll have enough capacity to make that happen. So that was having all those systems in place um, to, to answer those objective questions, um, that was a big part of the, of, you know, doing business with them, but then also knowing how the decision-making process works. So, okay, here's the, 
here's the person in supply chain who makes that decision. And here's, you know, here's what I'll need to prove to them that I'm efficient, that it, it's a cost that makes sense, that I have a, the right quality systems in place, um, and that they're comfortable that, you know, we would be, you know, someone they could trust. Um, mm -hmm. So it was kind of a combination of, yeah, I knew some of the individuals. Frankly, it wasn't the same individuals I'd worked with when I had my business, when I, when I ran a business from someone else. It was a different set of individuals, but I kind of knew how the organization worked. And I think more importantly, I knew kind of what they wanted. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was true for the Starbucks and McDonald's of the world. It's true for all those produce companies. Um, they, want, they want suppliers they can count on that are going to take care of them, that are going to be efficient and let them manage their business the way that they, they need to. So it's, um, and that's what working, you know, people said, Hey, you're an entrepreneur. And I'm like, yeah, but I was, I wasn't an entrepreneur. Like, you know, I wasn't like Steve jobs and thought this up while I was in college and, and then, you know, played it out with my, you know, my friends that live down the street. This is, a, I went to work every day for 25 years. I learned a bunch of stuff. Um, and then I was able to leverage that knowledge into making a business successful. So, uh, it was definitely, it started with my college, you know, and kind of learning how to think through issues and how to work in, you know, uh, an organization. But then a lot of it was built on my experience. Yeah. And you went to you, I think you graduated in 83. Does that sound right? So I graduated. So, um, the story of my life is kind of unexpected turns. So I met my wife. Um, so it was her first day of school. I was a sophomore. She was a freshman. Your wife is a duck? Yes. Oh my gosh. She didn't graduate because she, she we got married while I, we were still undergrads. Yeah, I just had my 40th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Um, but um, so I met her and... Um, you know, I thought, well, she's, she's great, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to get married until I'm, you know, way older and then had a change of heart. And, uh, then in my junior year said, I th you know, you know, we decided that we would get married and I'm like, I have to get done with school right away. So I crashed the last, you know, I went to, uh, the last spring, I went to summer school and then the fall. So I went to school for three years and a third of a semester. That's kind of, so I finished up in that December of 82. I graduated in, in with the group in 83. I started in 79, but so I okay. started, uh, that's kind of how my timing there at the UVO worked. And, and then I went to work for, it was funny because it was a hard time because 82, 83, the paper industry and timber was taking a big downturn. Uh, country is in a recession mm -hmm. and um, trying to find a job was difficult. So I started working in Eugene because I love Eugene, didn't want to leave and uh, no, no, no bites. Then I said, Oh, you know, maybe Portland wouldn't be so bad. Not no one there either. Then I thought, well, maybe Seattle, maybe San Francisco. So I finally got an interview with a company in San Francisco and uh, it was a big paper company. And I was uh, driving down. It was my grandparents 50th wedding anniversary. And so we were driving down and they lived in San Diego and I'm like, okay, I'll have, I'll drive down and I can come by for an interview. Well, that interview turned into a job offer when they, they said, Hey, we have two openings. One's in Bogalusa, Louisiana, and one's in Gwen's Falls, New York. Which one would you, uh, 
there's none of, nothing's in Oregon. Right. <laughs> so I took the job in New York. So uh, that's how my, you know, my plans of staying in Eugene turned into moving to upstate New York, uh, right out of school. Did you grow up in Oregon? I didn't. I was born in Washington, and I lived in Washington. Uh, I was born in Anacortes. Lived outside of Anacortes until I was in grade school. Then my dad had gotten a job in California, so we moved to California when I was in grade school. And then when I was a senior in high school, my dad got transferred back to Seattle. And so at the time it was, um, well, I want to be, I kind of like California. I kind of like Washington. Oregon's in between. <laughs> <laughs> a compromise. Yeah, it was a compromise. So that's how I ended up going to school at the Oboe. Oh, that's so cool. And you mentioned your dad. So he was an airline pilot. Um, and I know that you were the first in your family to go to college. What was that like? I mean, what was that like for them and for you? I mean, you know, I mean, I'd always done pretty well in school. So I think they had high expectation. They had an expectation. Even if I had done poorly in school, I was going to college. It was something that they wished they had done, you know, and I was the oldest. So they really wanted me to go to college. I was probably not the most, you know, motivated teenager. Um, but school, you know, I was able to do okay in school. But they had a high expectation of me going to college. And then I went to college, and which kind of the first couple of years, I kind of, I did well in my classes, but I wasn't kind of unfocused. I think I changed my major five times. And then, like I said, I met my wife. I decided, hey, I'm time to get my act together. And... Uh, decided to become a business major and um, and my folks were excited you know they were they were they were kind of they had a very kind of commercial perspective on college which is you're going to go to college to get a better job so you can be more successful in life um, and then I when I was working I started to work on my master's in the evening um, when I was in upstate New York and um, they're like okay I get that you're still you're not giving up your job you're you know furthering your education at night and then I decided after I worked for uh, a couple different companies, I decided to quit and go back and get my PhD full time. And they're like, what, why, what, that's crazy. <laughs> you already got a good job. Too much college. <laughs> Too much college. My wife fortunately was a school teacher and she was able to support us. We had a young daughter at the time. So it was kind of like I was half the time I was uh, working on my PhD. Half the time I was being the babysitter. Um, and there was a good, uh, it was a good experience for us. Um, my, my career goal after getting that first job was to get back to Eugene because it was such a great experience. And 3430 Donald Street was our house there. <laughs> uh, one of the first homes we ever owned. And, uh, and then when we finally got back and my wife's like, you want to go back to school now? And you want us to move cross country? That's crazy. I think you said when we were talking earlier about taking chances and, you know, taking, making big decisions and, uh, I don't even, I don't think about them that much, but you're right. When, in, when, in hindsight, when I reflect on them, they, they were pretty big chances and big decisions. Yeah. It doesn't seem, I mean, like impulsive isn't the right word, but decisive. It seems like you just kind of like looked at the options and then just chose one based on the best information that you had and, and never looked back, which I think a lot of people struggle with. I think that sometimes big decisions can be very, um, I don't know, like paralyzing for people. I, I agree a hundred percent with you. I didn't realize it was, 
I thought everybody thought like I did, but that's the thing about when you have more life experience, you realize that not everybody thinks the same way. And especially, you know, my job now, I'm running a company and there's a couple thousand people here and there aren't very many people that think like I do. I figured that out. It took me a mm-hmm. while. Um, and, you know, I try to get, I try to encourage people to follow their dreams and to be willing to make those big decisions. It's not, I used to think it was easy, but I, now mm-hmm. I understand that it's not easy. It's not because everybody's, everybody thinks differently. Right. Um, my dad was kind of the same way. He, he was a truck mechanic when I was a little kid and he decided that he wanted to be a pilot and he went down and started taking flying lessons and he started flying the mail out to San Juan islands and started flying fish back and forth to Alaska. And then, um, then got a job with airlines when I was in grade school. Um, and so he didn't go to college, but he, um, you know, put his sight on something and, you know, he was, he was decisive. Mm-hmm. He might, if he was sitting here next to me. He might say that I was a bit impulsive, but <laughs> so, uh, but, but I think you were kind when you said I was decisive. <laughs> so it, it, it ended up working out for me. Well, I mean, to me, the word impulsive means that you're, being irresponsible but I think decisive just means that you're brave and you're just choosing a choice because sometimes you just don't have the information to know what the right decision is so you just pick one I was wondering when you were talking about your dad and flying and how um, you had the eye injury and couldn't be a commercial uh, pilot do you fly at all recreationally did you still you know it's kind of a funny story so I got when I was younger I got you know I'd worked on getting my pilot's license and then when I went to school, you know, uh, it was expensive at the time. So I, I stopped doing it and I went back and started flying again after I, my, you know, had some business success and I didn't love it as much as I thought I would, you know, it was like, you know, I thought this was like a unfulfilled dream, but it was really like, um, it was okay, but it was, you know, I did it because it was kind of like a challenge I had to meet, but it wasn't, right. I didn't love it. So I haven't, I haven't kept it up. It was about what it represented instead of actually what the experience was, I guess. Yeah, that's a good, a good way to put it. Yeah. I see we're almost at time, but I wanted to um, just use the last few minutes and see if you had any advice for recent graduates or, um, you know, anybody who's just starting their career path. Anything you can think of that a young graduate might need to hear? Yeah, so I think you said part of it earlier, which is follow your dreams, which I think is kind of a, you know, I think that's what people hear that often. So I don't know if that will be that insightful for them. I remember when I was in school and it was the recency versus the primary effect. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I guess the way I've translated that into my own life is you only you regret the things you don't do. I never regret the things I do, even if they don't turn out perfect, because I tried. Um, mm-hmm. But if I don't try something, um, I'll look back and say, "Oh, I wish I had done that." I would encourage, uh, you know, recent grads to, you know, first of all, you have to be opportunistic. You have to find the opportunities in front of you. You can't. You can't wait for perfect to happen. My first job out of school wasn't what I didn't plan on living in upstate New York. That was never thought about doing that in a million years. 
And I spent a couple of years there. I didn't plan on working in distribution. I, that was just kind of how it worked out for me. There wasn't a linear path. If you said today, you know, what's the best way to get from A to B? Uh, there was, you know, I didn't take any classes in entrepreneurship, but, you know, it all worked out for me. I, I'd encourage you to learn from the situation you're in. Always try to be, you know, uh, ambitious and try to figure out how to move forward. Even if you're not in the perfect position that you want, that you want to be right now, don't be afraid to take action. Don't be talking about stuff. Just do it. Don't look in the rearview mirror, move forward. Something doesn't work out, move on from it. Don't be dwelling on it. That's good advice. Good advice for anyone, actually, not just recent grads, for sure. No matter where you're at in your career, I think that's advice you can utilize. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us and go Ducks. Go Ducks. Thanks, Michelle. (laughs) 